they can get feedback about how they may need to course correct before, as we say, the window of judgment slams shut and people are offended by them or think that they don't get the role. Welcome to We're Only Human, a podcast focused on blending research and practical advice to help today's HR, talent, and learning leaders improve business outcomes. Let's welcome your host, Ben Eubanks. This is Ben Eubanks, and welcome to We Are Only Human. I'm so glad to have you here. It's going to be a great, great show today. A couple of housekeeping things really quick. One thing is, it, it occurred to me that I talk about research a lot. I talk about it, but I don't actually tell you about the actual research. So when I talk about it, I'm going to start dropping in little notes and bits and pieces from our research on a regular basis here at the beginning of some of these episodes so you can keep in touch with some of the big picture things that we're seeing. For example, let me give you a couple quick pieces from our new compensation study. So we did a research on compensation technology and how employees are using it, what they like, what they don't like. And what's interesting is we actually broke the data out by high-performing companies and low-performing companies. In our research, high-performing employers are the ones that have better employee retention, employee engagement, and higher revenue than their peers. And so those are high-performing employers. And when we break the data out, we always find interesting things. And so in our research, this study specifically, we found that high-performers are more likely to use dedicated compensation technology, not just Excel. They're also more likely to use multiple sources of data to build out their market pricing, not just one thing they found on the internet, but multiple sources to try to get the best, most accurate price. And they're also more likely to build a diverse selection team. When they're trying to pick a piece of technology for compensation, they are more likely to build a broader and more diverse team of people throughout the business than a low-performing company. All that, interestingly, rolls up into one fact. High performers are more satisfied with the tools they're using, more so than low performers. So lots of interesting things coming out of the data, and that's just a couple quick hits. But if you want to see any more of that data, see what it looks like by company size, by company geographic distribution, how people are using this stuff, what they like most and least, what they're excited about, what they would buy if they had the money, all those things, that free report's going to be coming out very soon. So you can sign up at the Lighthouse Research and Advisory website. That's lhra.io. If you want to check that out, we'll send that out to you when it lands. Just sign up there on our, on our website, and uh, we'll get you the new research. Next time around, we'll talk about some of this new data we're seeing in our uh, small and mid-sized business, HR, small and mid-sized business, SMB, HR Tech, HR staffing and our HR outsourcing practices. Some really neat things come in there. We looked at 1,003 employers, 1,003 to be accurate, employers that have 1,000 or fewer employees to look at companies from 1 to 999 and figure out what sorts of things they're doing, what their practices are, what sort of HR staffing levels they have, what technology they're using, if they use outsourcing, and if so, what kinds. So we got really, really in-depth on that. And again, I'm so pumped to share some of that research. And so we'll talk about some of those key things we found there next time around. We're actually, in addition to other housekeeping, starting a new series on the podcast, HR Career Excellence. So we've had some episodes in the past in the, in the archive that were career-oriented, and I keep hearing over and over and over again from listeners that those are some of their favorite types of shows. We heard from, goodness, so many good speakers, so many good people that are in the profession that have, that have moved up to other levels, so many people that have really interesting stories around their careers. And so we're going to keep a recurring spotlight on this topic for at least you know, once a month, 
to not only give us more information about new research, market trends, best practices, the kind of things you expect from Real Human, but also how to improve ourselves as leaders and especially leaders within kind of the HR function. So today's topic is actually kind of a hybrid on that, but I wanted to let you know if, you, if there's ever a topic that you want to see on the podcast, I guess technically you're going to hear it on the podcast, not see it, but if there's a topic you want, either in this career series or just overall, like, hey, I want to know more about this kind of technology or that kind of trend. Is this thing really happening or is it just a fad? What are these companies doing? I want to hear more case studies. Whatever kinds of things you want to hear, shoot me a note. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Ben Eubanks, very easy to find. Shoot me a note and we'll get that into our editorial calendar so we can make sure we're delivering the stuff that you are looking for to help make you better, make you more informed, and hopefully to entertain you a little bit here and there as well. So as I mentioned a minute ago, today's show is kind of a hybrid of some of these things. In the in the show, I talk with Linda Reese. She's the leader. She's the expert in leader onboarding, and she's an author. She's a coach. But as you're quickly going to realize, she is incredibly experienced at helping new leaders add value to the business. How do we get them up to speed, connected to the business, and contributing quickly so that the business sees the ROI on what they're paying these people? And so, what I liked about it is we hear about onboarding a lot, and I want to take a different approach and ask Linda because she's the expert here on what that looks like for leaders specifically. And we heard from other leaders in the past that have started new positions and what that looks like for their transition. And I wanted to hear from her a little bit more, more specifically some ways to, that we can, on the HR side, make that a more seamless transition for new people. So obviously these lessons can apply not just when you're doing that, but also when you're taking a new HR role. If next month you start a new job or next year you start a new job, can these ideas help you to ease that transition, start contributing more quickly, be seen as a valuable contributor to the business, all those good things. So. Really excited to bring Linda in, and now, on with the show. Hey everyone, this is Ben Eubanks, host of We're Only Human, and I'm so glad you're here. This is going to be a really, really great conversation. One of the topics that we have not talked about much in the last three plus years of doing the show is onboarding. And it's one of those things when I'm, when I'm talking to HR leaders and talent leaders and even learning on their side of the onboarding equation, everybody has a different viewpoint on this. Everybody's really curious about a, this and everybody thinks they're doing it worse than everyone else. And so I'm really interested to have a conversation today with Dr. Linda Reese. She's actually the managing partner of Leader Onboarding. We're going to look at onboarding, how it works. We're going to look at it from the perspective of leaders because I think that's one of the key layers of this that we don't often focus on. We kind of put everybody through the same process, and they need a different kind of focus, different kind of approach. And so I'm really excited about this. Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. It's really nice to be here. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about Linda, right? Tell us who you are, what you do. Well, I'm Linda Reese, and I'm an industrial and organizational psychologist by training, uh, but my job is to be the managing partner of a consulting and coaching firm called Leader Onboarding. And we focus on Fortune 1000 and high-growth companies as well as some venture capital firms to help them manage the risk associated with the transitions that leaders make as they join their organization or get promoted. Awesome. I love that. Just for my own fun, you said consulting and coaching. Tell me the difference between those two. Well, I think of coaching as being um, an intervention that's done around a single transition. Uh, we also like to build the capacity for our clients to do their own onboarding and onboarding coaching so that we can really scale. We'll have a multiplier effect. And I think of coaching as being individually focused or just about that job in that context, and the consulting piece is more systemic and trying to create more consistency across the experiences in the organization. 
Okay, interesting. Very cool. I like that. I like that distinction. So, of all the things you could focus on, your background's in IO psych. You could you could focus on anything at all, pretty much. Why onboarding? Why is that so critical? Why do you think that's the the right area to focus on? Well, you know, we're really trained in my discipline to look at individuals and then how they function within organizations. And we started doing this work about 20 years ago. And the reason we were called in to do this work by a large retailer was because they were experiencing very high um, leader turnover. And it was easy for them at that time, 20 years ago, to place a cost associated with each of those sort of failings. So for someone who is in a director-level role, the average cost of losing that person before they were in role 18 months was $421,000. For a VP, uh, the cost was around a million dollars. And for the people who headed up businesses, the cost was, as they called it, incalculable. And Mm. we pretty much assumed that everybody starts their new job intending to be successful and that the organizations intend for their new hires to be successful so that somewhere in the process, something goes wrong. And this probably sounds a little trite, Ben, but what we have heard when leaders derailed, you know, was the organization sort of explaining it away by saying, oh, they just don't fit here. They're not a good culture fit. They're not fit for the job. And there was such a strong pattern of that that we decided to explore it more, and it actually caused us to write a book called The Myth of Fit, um, really that there are other reasons um, why people are successful and unsuccessful in their jobs, and we wanted to help them figure that out. Hmm. Very interesting. So that's one of the things when I'm talking to, to leaders as well about onboarding. Like I always gravitate to, towards the the cost of not having this in place, the cost of driving people away, and that the point you made there about they just don't fit. It's one thing to say that about you know the admin that that starts with us and and leaves three months later because it quote unquote wasn't a fit. But when that leader comes in, we're investing a lot of time in them, we're investing a lot of resources into them, and they turn over. Like you said, the, the cost could be some measurable number or immeasurable, right? To, to just the, the sheer impact to the business. So, how should employers focus differently on onboarding? a leader than someone that's just in, I don't say just, but someone that is an individual contributor role. How is it different for leaders, and what should they be thinking about? Well, and I think the point I'd like to make before we talk about leaders is just about employees in general, and that is that you've got someone coming into a job, expecting it to be a certain way, wanting to make a contribution, probably expecting themselves to make that contribution quickly. That's universal. So everybody really deserves onboarding support so they are clear about the role so that they focus on the things they need to do to learn and grow in the role. I think what's different about leaders is the level of complexity and the organizational impact they have. And one of the things that we learned as we were doing this work was that even though no one would really talk about it, there were things that leaders did or didn't do or there were things about the job itself that were increasing the risk for leaders or causing them to be more successful. And we really wanted to help organizations understand that it's not about finding the right person. They're typically pretty good at finding the right person if they're using a robust selection process, but it's about how to get that person in the role, situated in the role, understanding the role, and then really putting down roots for the long term. That's why we think leaders deserve support, but we wouldn't say that individual contributors don't deserve it. They definitely do. We just don't think they get enough attention. Yeah. I, well, I think I would agree with that for sure. And that's why I wanted to differentiate a little bit because one of the things you said 
a few minutes ago, you said the risk associated with the leadership transition. And again, so many times I've seen in my own career as an HR leader, hey, you know, um, James is the new the new VP in this in this position. Maybe he got promoted. Maybe he got hired. It doesn't matter. We basically handed him the keys and said, good luck, you know. <laughs> and that's how it feels watching it from the outside. And I mean, that's that's doing a disservice to that person, right, to the organization more broadly, to anyone working under them. Seems like we're missing the boat there. So talk about that, the risks associated with with that transition. What risks are inherent in that, and maybe how can we mitigate some of those? Well, and and you know that we we really we've developed and used a risk assessment tool with our clients, the hiring managers and HR partners and organizations, and we think it's important to cover all the bases and really understand what's happening. So some risks are obvious, like if someone's becoming a first-time general manager, so they went from being a VP of a function to now they're being a president of that organization. That's a big jump in job scope, and it's multifaceted, and now they have to know how to manage people that are not trained in the same area they are. Um, That's sort of obvious. Relocating for a job is another risk factor, because often executives come accompanied by family members that include adolescents. And there's uh, no one quite so unhappy as an adolescent who's forced to move to a new city. So we also think it's important that the personal transition get attended to and that we understand the nature of the personal transition when sizing up the role. Uh, And I think another example of a risk factor that we find to be very powerful is the presence of someone who's unhappy that the leader is in the role. And we call that person a rival, not because we believe in, you know, office politics and all that stuff, but because if someone wasn't considered for the role or was considered and didn't get it, um, they carry around negative emotions that affect their behavior towards that new leader and they affect relationship building, they affect knowledge exchange, they affect the extent to which the leader is going to get feedback and be supported. So we like to size up the risk factors and with one client, there's about 20 risk factors one client decided that if a leader had six or more of the 20 risk factors present, that they needed full coaching support. And that sort of became the process that we've evolved over the years and used to this day to figure out what kind of support leaders get based on the risk factors that are present. Mm, that's really interesting. So if you if you have very few, right, maybe it's an internal transition and you didn't have a lot of arrivals or you know, whatever the, the factors might be, but there's very few issues potentially there. They they can get a little more of a stock approach, whereas someone that has a high number of those gets really personal, really tailored support. Going back to the definition you get for coaching earlier, right? That person is getting not not to be like condescending, but they're getting their hand held through this transition so that they well, can I, be successful. Yeah. And I think if you think of it sort of like in an emergency room when they triage the patient when they come in, you know, there are some people who have a sprain and there are some people who have compound fractures, you know, and mm-hmm. you treat those folks differently. They're all in pain, um, but you want to give them different levels of support and assessment. And I do think one thing just quickly mention, which is internal transitions are not quite as easy as people think they are. I just want to say that um, out loud because – When someone moves inside an organization, let's say they're even staying in the same business unit, but they're being promoted. Now they're managing former peers. Um, They're expected to hit the ground running and know how to do their job from day one. They don't get a window of judgment. You know, they don't get an amount of time before the organization makes a decision about whether this was the right promotion or not. They're pretty much in the job full time the day they start. 
And so, you know, what we do recommend, we really believe that there are not enough of us to go around. We feel like we have a personal mission to help people be more effective in their jobs and to help organizations be more effective in supporting the people who are doing the jobs. Um, But there's, you know, not enough of us to go around to serve every organization that exists. So what we really like to do is build internal capacity to deliver onboarding support in certain ways. And when you talked about different levels of support and different levels of complexity, we have a tool we use called Level Set Early Feedback that can be used pretty generically for any leader who transitions into a new role. And it helps them really early in their transition, Ben, understand how effectively they're navigating and more about the context. And so they can get feedback about how they may need to course correct before, as we say, the window of judgment slams shut and people are offended by them or think that they don't get the role. Um, So that's a fairly light touch, and we have uh, qualified quite a few organizations and and HR and OD people in those organizations um, to deliver level set internally. And we have an external hire and internal move version of level set because we think that it's different. Um, Different kinds of dynamics are happening in those two different situations. Um, But you're right. The more complex the transition, the higher impact the role, the more resources that are applied, um, a standard thing we do for an operational leader like a general manager or president, you know, a, a function head for a really big company would be something called culture snapshot. And what that does is helps them understand how their operation is perceived both by the people in the operation but also by the people in the organization that depend on their team uh, for their own effectiveness. And it gives the leader a way to size up the culture without coming in and saying, well, here I am, I'm a new leader, and I think that we're bad because of all these things. The leader gets to take the data to the team and say, hey, this is what the people that depend on us are telling us about the extent to which we're meeting our needs. Let's talk about where we're hitting it, where we're missing it, and what we need to do differently in order to best support them. And so that would be a fairly high-end, complex transition where we would use something like Culture Snapshot. In the middle would be what we standard, a standard component of our coaching is called the team alignment process. And that's helping the leader develop an understanding of the extent to which their team members feel like the team is clear about what it's supposed to accomplish, that its accountabilities and its authorities match, and that's how we define alignment, and the things that the team needs from the leader in order to be optimally effective. So there are major component pieces. And then, of course, there's coaching around the unique circumstances of each individual's transition. Hmm. So one of the things that occurs to me hearing about these the, the wide variety of approaches that a leader can, that you can take towards a leader is, the, the timeline, like how long should someone expect us to take? Is this onboarding process a a month? Is it three months? Is it ongoing beyond that because there's a coaching element involved? I'm kind of curious what you would say is a, I don't know if it's an average, there is an average, or I'm just kind of curious about that piece of it because so many times it's like, hey, you've been here for three months, you should know everything that you need to know. And in some large organizations, you know a fraction of what you need to know to be successful long term. You figured out like I just got the the bathroom in the parking lot sorted out, right? I don't know, I don't know all of these people in my in my function, or I don't know my peers in other countries, or you know, depending on how broad and diverse that organization is, there could be other things you don't. It takes you more time to get kind of connected into and to understand how to utilize. And so I'm kind of curious about the the timeline and the uh, what that looks like. Well, the timeline has definitely shrunk. I mean, I think that's one of the most interesting things is that, you know, when we started, 
our clients had a hunger for supporting these leaders for nine to 12 months and really, you know, tying it up with a bow and making sure that they were getting everything they needed to be successful. Um, in one retailer that led uh, the organization uh, to call it the sweater folding period, which was the first three months the leader was in the role when they were out in their stores and doing other things. And we never want a highly placed leader um, uh, to be feeling like they're spending their first three months folding sweaters. We do think that the um, really the optimal window for supporting um, a leader's transition through coaching is probably four to six months. And the first three months are most intensive. And really what's interesting to us is that, oh, just to comment on one risk factor and why it makes onboarding more complicated, a lot of times organizations hire people to make change, right? They come in and they start making change willy-nilly without having spent time understanding and honoring the organization that they're joining. And they often are stopped dead in their tracks because of it. So we think it's especially important that they spend the first three months learning about the broader you know, corporate environment, learning about the business unit they're in, the function that they're leading or the team that they're leading, um, and forming some opinions and making some recommendations. And then when you combine that with things like the culture snapshot and the team alignment process, they've now got data about the things that are optimal for them to focus on to really accelerate their own transition and make their team more cohesive or perform at a higher level. Um, so we really like to say, rather than trying to grab the low-hanging fruit, you know, come in and understand why that fruit is there hanging so low and why no one's ever picked it before. Um, spend those first three months sizing things up and then go to your boss, the hiring manager, and say, listen, I spent three months learning. I've traveled to, you know, name the country. You know, I've traveled to different regions. I've traveled to Latin America. I've tried to learn how things are different in all these places and having all this data in front of me, plus my own judgment as a leader and listening to your guidance, I really recommend that we um, change our reporting relationships or we restructure the organization or we do something differently with the team. And at that point, at three months, the new leader is going to be highly credible to the hiring manager because they've come in and respected and learned. So the bulk of the activity in their transition is going to happen before they really activate their full performance. And so we do, you know, sort of create more intensity in the data presented and in the coaching support in the first three to four months. By months four to six, we're really listening for the extent to which they're truly aligned in their role, you know, pulling in the same direction that their boss is, that the organization is clear about what they're supposed to deliver, and they seem to be headed um, towards being able to deliver their um, accountabilities. Um, at six months, it's our hope that they're about 80% proficient. And that varies. The more technical the role is, obviously, the more complex it is for them to get to that. But that's about the best we can do, and that's about the best that organizations have patience for in this sort of crazy world that we live in right now. I've heard stories of other of some companies that are very much outliers in terms of how much time and effort and resources they invest in helping someone settle in and get really comfortable with the the way we do things, the culture, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. And right now I'm totally blanking on the name of one of the companies I read about in a book last year, but they basically for the first month or two on the job, you do nothing at all related to your job. You just learn and you cycle around and you learn, and not so much about folding sweaters, um, but you, you are connecting with other people that are in your role already or people that have been in your role and transitioned on, 
and you're learning from those people so that when you sit down to, like you were saying, make your first decision to start your first initiative, to do whatever you have to do, whether you're making change or just picking up the reins from someone else that someone left behind, you then feel like you understand what you need to understand. You feel like you have some credibility because you've built that rapport with those people around you, and you're not just jumping in with both feet and hoping that this isn't going to be one of those many leader transition that completely fails and bombs because you haven't taken the time to do those things. So they invest heavily in that. But like you said, that's not that is not common. Most companies it's sink or swim, you know, you're it sounds sounds like the firms you're talking with at least have some budget and some prioritization on investing in this transition in the relationship and making sure they're successful, especially if they put dollars to it and they understand that. But um it's it amazes me. Like you said, there there's some that they expect you to be up and running quickly, and it's the more, the higher you go in the organization, the more complex it is, the, the more time they should expect it to take for you to fully get your arms wrapped around everything you need to be successful. In exactly, that and I think that that's the challenge, right? What we have found is that the companies that expect people to be fully functioning really early in their transition, they don't have a lot of tolerance for learning by asking questions or learning by making mistakes. Um, so we would make some assumptions about that culture, and we would probably shift our our coaching focus a little bit because for some of those organizations, as ironic as it sounds, onboarding is a sign of weakness. <laughs> you don't really get us if you need all that support. We think we love when we hear the companies do 12 months, and that's really the outside. Um, we love hearing that because they tend to be really good at talent management. That's the other thing I would mention is that we think that onboarding is sort of like the intersection of organizational development and talent management because it's about really making sure that someone is seated well in their role and experiencing that role in the organization in a way that's going to make them a leader who's a high potential for the future. And it is a big investment for organizations to provide this kind of support. Another thing that's interesting to me is that sometimes the reason we get the first client within a certain company is because that company's in a lot of pain. Um, and that can be that there's been sort of a revolving door around a transition. So it could be that there's one function like finance or another like marketing or strategy where they've had two or three leaders in the last three or four years. And, you know, it takes 18 months for people to really perform at full capacity um, and be proficient and ready to be considered for another role. Um, and and if you're not going to give people the time to transition, you have to wonder how they're really feeding their talent pipeline because these leaders, they're so high impact. They make or break the future of the organizations that they join. So when an organization's in pain, we don't smile. We don't want anybody to be in pain, but we appreciate that they recognize they're in pain. They understand that the pain is coming from the need for someone to be successful in the role and then they're really willing to sit down and talk about where they need to get with this leader and how we can get there together. This, I don't know why my brain went to this, but I'm, you were saying a minute ago that this some companies see this new leader stepping into the role and asking a lot of questions and being generally curious. Um, we, in some of our research, we've we've looked at automation and human skills, and one of the skills we focus on um, is 
curiosity, right? Asking a lot of questions and just being generally curious about things. We're all naturally curious, but we stop asking as many questions as we get older. So those people that do sort of stick out in our minds. Like that person asked a lot of questions and they're they're always very curious. And it for some reason my mind took me over to like if someone's investigating a crash site, they're gonna ask a lot of questions. And in some in some cases I'm sure you could tell lots of crazy stories, but this some of the situations these leaders are stepping into are just as bad. It's a it's a crash, right? Something bad yeah. has happened. They're they're coming in to try to clean up the mess and everything else, and they have they have to ask a lot of questions in order to be effective. If they don't, they, I don't remember the there's a there's a quote out there. Basically, you can tell people do what you want, but that's only that only works for a limited amount of time. You can only be just you know hard charging for a while before you burn people out and you start pushing them away. Whereas you come in and you approach it from the perspective of I'm curious how I can help, how we can be better, how I can support you. Taking that approach is going to be, lead to sl- slower but longer-term sticky results. And I, that's just the first thing I popped in my head when you were talking about that. Well, and that's a really good point. And we think humility is super important to effective onboarding, regardless of the company. And we, there's a book we really like called Humble Leadership. And it's about coming in and sizing up a situation and really resisting the temptation, even if it's a bloody mess, right? Even if the crash has been, you know, had fatalities organizationally, to come in and be gentle about how you ask the questions and be respectful about how you ask the questions and ask them in a way that causes other people to do thinking and bring forward some of the potential solutions. That takes the onus off the new leader for being the author of the solutions, you know, because they can be kept at arm's length. If the organization embraces the transition and the leader engages with their colleagues in a way that's really respectful and humble, we tend to see very favorable outcomes from a relationship-building perspective. And that's one point I think I'd like to um, just focus on for a moment is that a lot of times organizations will schedule meet and greets as part of the onboarding process. We think it's a fantastic opportunity, Ben, for new leaders to not only meet people Um, but to gain insight on their own operations. So during that time when they're meeting new people, they should have a couple of objectives. And one should be to get a sense of the history between the two functions that they represent and the needs that the other function has of them and the extent to which their own operation has met those needs over time. Another purpose, and this actually feeds into it, is to see this not just as a chance to say hello, but it's a chance to say, you're important to me. This is great foundational knowledge. Can I check back with you in a month, maybe buy you lunch and pick your brain about you know, the further questions that I know I'm going to have about this? And the idea is that these meet and greets truly become the basis for long-term relationships. And we believe there's really three things that are essential for any successful transition. And that is that you build relationships, you gain knowledge, and you receive and act upon feedback. And if you think about that, the way you're going to gain knowledge and receive and act upon feedback is through other human beings and, you know, having relationships with them. So, you know, where we see leaders coming in with solutions or preconceived ideas or not being humble enough and asking questions and being too diagnostic, um, we tend to see the relationships sort of fail to form. And when that's the case, the leader is especially at risk because they need people um, to give them information, but they also need support. They need people who will say, I endorse that person because they've gone around and asked the right questions. So going back to curiosity, I think 
you always need to be aware of the organizations that think curiosity is a sign of weakness or a sign of overstepping one's bounds. But that's something that I think that candidates can also identify during the selection process as well. If, if they're pretty curious in the selection process and they feel shut down by that, they should be paying attention to how that feels and how likely it is that the organization is going to treat them that way when they become an employee. Mm, interesting. Oh, I love that. I love it. Okay. Whew, goodness. I'm taking a ton of notes over here. I'm, I'm loving this conversation. This has been so cool. Um, oh, let's see. The last question I have for you is we've talked about some really interesting facets of this this process, right? different practices um, all around the problem for sure. We've really defined that pretty well. What piece of practical advice would you give to employers? They're trying to improve their leader onboarding practices. What thing can they take away from this conversation or things um, that could help them to, to make up an impact, hopefully, you know, this month, this week, something, something that, that they can go for? Well, I think the most important thing to know is what is it that they hope to gain by having stronger onboarding practices. And we would say it's, you know, obtaining the right talent, getting them embedded well, ramping them up quickly, supporting them, and making a difference in their roles. And so, you know, it starts with the right talent. I think that onboarding really starts in the selection process. And, you know, you're telling the candidate a lot about the organization. At the same time, they're telling you a lot about themselves. And it's so important to be straightforward about what the role is, what it entails. If there's some bloody, dirty work that the new leader is going to have to do two months into the job and you know it, it's really important to sort of preview that to the leader um, before, um, you know, hiring them. We, you know, in IO psychology, we talk about the value of a realistic job preview. And the risk of a realistic job preview is that you will scare away some, some candidates. But those tend to be people who do not feel confident about their ability to handle the mess or are not intrigued. Um, a lot of times when you give a realistic job preview and you're, you're transparent about the challenges that the new leader might face in the job, it activates their curiosity factor, right? And they love the idea of solving a puzzle. Um, so, you know, if there's a discrepancy between what they thought they were getting and what they end up with, they're going to have really breached trust between the organization and the leader, and that is a bad place to start. So I think, first of all, be honest about what the job is help them see that and help them be able to commit to the job, knowing that it will always evolve and change and grow, but that, you know, the baseline understanding of the job is correct or directionally correct at least. Um, I think other practical advice is recognize that everybody needs and deserves support. They may not feel comfortable asking for it. It's probably better to do something like a risk assessment up front, privately, not tell the leader that you're doing this risk assessment because it can create anxiety, but have the key stakeholders to the role do the risk assessment and then decide what level of support they'd like to offer the leader, making sure that they offer some. And just to go back to not discussing the risk, we always joke about, you know, it's sort of like going up and trying to take a tee shot and having someone say right before you take your swing, oh, whatever you do, don't hit that ball into the water hazard. <laughs> because that's where it goes. Um, you know, that's where, and if we tell a leader, oh, you're entering a job that's so risky, um, and here's all the risk factors, they tend to become anxious, and that anxiety constrains their learning, their relationship formation, and just in general makes their transition more difficult. 
Very interesting. I love that approach. I love I love that. Um, interesting. Okay. Ooh. So I have I have lots of insights here, and I have taken so many like key takeaways from this conversation that I just love um, from the focus on humility, the crash thing of sticking in my head, um, the the piece about you said about low hanging fruit. Figure out why it's low hanging, why no one's picked it. I think that's a really great kind of approach to think about that because it's so easy to say, oh, well, obviously this here is the problem. Let's jump on that, and you find out two weeks later there's a reason no one has has touched that that thing. Um, Can I so, tell you a st- scary story really quickly? Oh goodness, let's <laughs> let's wrap it up with that. Yes, ma'am. Um, we had a client that hired someone from a very admired competitor to come in and do a postmortem on a failed project. And it was a big deal. It was a launch that didn't go well. And that competitor had a culture that was very transparent, gave feedback, you know, did critical analysis without blaming, et cetera, et cetera, and just were very dispassionate about what they found and took that information forward and got better. Well, that person happened to come to an organization that was a very nice, kind organization, and it took him just a few weeks to figure out that the author of the problem was his boss. Mm. And because he did not pay attention um, to the differences between the organizations, he behaved as if he was at his old company and made that known publicly. And by the time we met him, he was sitting in a cubicle, a very large cubicle, but a senior-level leader in a large cubicle in the mid-level floor of a high-rise organization. So he was sort of locked away somewhere with no one to talk to, and it was very clear to us that this early move he'd made around, you know, sort of, you know, calling it out um, would end up costing him his job. And it was very unfortunate that it did, um, but I think it was a cautionary tale for us and helped us recognize that, just because you think you know what the problem is and you have a way of approaching it doesn't mean that that's how you go about it in a different context. Mm. And again, like you said, like you in, uh, pointed out earlier on, like that coach could have given him that insight if he's having coaching, if he's having support earlier in the process, right, to know that's not a bad, not the right way to go. And so absolutely, everyone could use that person behind their shoulder saying, you may be completely 100% correct, but... <laughs> Be careful how you share this information because it's, it's it might not go well. So absolutely, wow. So Linda, this has been this has been so much fun for me. How can someone learn more about the work you're doing or get in touch? Well, the obvious one is our website is leaderonboarding.com, uh, and there's tons of information there. And I would suggest if some more interested, check it out and then reach out if they want to talk about something specific. Um, we have a toll-free number, 877-733-7310. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, at Linda S. Reese. But also, our book, The Myth of Fit, is available on Amazon. And we like it because it's really practical. And it's designed so that there's information for the hiring manager, the HR partner, and the new leaders so that they can tackle things together as a team. Awesome. We'll have to have a conversation at some point in the future about The Myth of Fit because it's one of the when I'm when I'm presenting and sharing, that's one of the things we want to rely on, almost as a crutch. But I I don't always feel comfortable. It's hard to coach an audience on that topic sometimes when that's not the topic I'm presenting on. But people want to go to go to that as a as a as something they want to talk about. So we'll have to dig into that one a little bit later because that would be a lot of fun to to explore that more deeply. Um, 
Whew, goodness. All right. So thank you again, Linda. This has been so much fun. To everyone else, thank you for joining us on this episode of We're Only Human. I'm Ben Eubanks, your host, and we will catch you next time. Thank you for listening to We're Only Human. Please take a moment to share this episode with another HR leader who might see it as a valuable resource in their daily work. For more information about the podcast and to see all our show archives, please visit upstarthr.com.